the girls were in the house and they were calling for Victoria and Victoria's sitting there and she has a hearing loss and they're yelling for her, Victoria, where are you? Where are you? And I don't remember. She was older. She was probably two and a half, two maybe. And I'm thinking, why are they calling her? She can't hear them. She doesn't understand. She has Down syndrome. Don't they know this? And then all of a sudden I hear, I hear. And wow, like uh, I was, it, it was just, don't think about anything that your child can't do. But I thought I knew what she couldn't do. But her young, older sisters, they haven't been through this world that we have. They're not as educated as we are. They didn't know that she shouldn't know how to do that. They just called her. My name is Sharon Betters, and I'm Executive Director of Mark Inc. Ministries, a nonprofit organization dedicated to producing and distributing resources that offer help and hope to the hurting especially the hurts that seem so daily and are often unnoticed by others. You can visit our website at markinc.org, where you'll find many free resources that address numerous life crises, such as the loss of a loved one, suicide, adultery, adoption, chronic illness, help for military families, and many more. Right now, you are listening to one of our stories in our Warrior Women audio library, a series of interviews with women who have experienced challenging life crises. Each woman, in my opinion, fits the definition of a warrior because she has faced her challenges with faith, grit, and determination to experience purpose and joy no matter how fierce the battle. While every person's story is unique, we are confident that these stories will help equip you for your own life journey, no matter what your circumstances. In the studio with me today is Karen Marsh, and Karen is probably best known as mother of Victoria, but she also has two other beautiful daughters. Welcome, Karen. Thank you. Karen, as I thought about the privilege of interviewing you, the title that kept coming to mind was Raising Victoria. Anyone who knows you knows that those two words are pregnant with emotion, drama, excitement, hard work, and great joy. But before we share with our listeners your story, let's set the stage of your life before you welcome Victoria into your family. We were in West Virginia. We had just moved from Delaware after having been there for three or four years. And I moved pregnant. And it was in about March or April, just a couple months pregnant. Victoria was due in September. Um, so we moved. My husband was in pharmaceutical sales, and he had a very large territory. He traveled from Maryland throughout West Virginia into Tennessee and Kentucky. So that caused him to need to be on the road quite a bit. Most of the time it was three out of four weeks of the month that he was gone, usually officially Monday through Friday, but it ended up being Sunday night, so he could be where he needed to be Monday morning, and then late Friday night. So it was it was crazy. We moved and went to a, a nice area outside of the capital, so we was a little bit, little bit of city, but we were really far away from anything major. If you wanted to go shopping, you had to drive four hours, and it was tough. So we needed to find friends quickly. And how did you do that? I went around and one of the things we did with the girls was we vacation Bible school hopped and it was the summertime and needed to find something and I thought that was a great opportunity to find um, good good families for my daughters to be around and hopefully for me to meet some moms so we went to we just kind of looked in the paper and found who was having a vacation Bible school and we went from one to the next and no, not every single week, but we did. That was definitely one of the ways that we did that. That is so cool. <laughs> I think that's great. Anybody involved in children's ministry in their local church, you have no idea how you're helping people in ways you never expected. That's great. So then Victoria was born. She was. And what made her birth a little different than the births of your other children? The day after she was born, it was she was born in the evening, and Friday morning the doctor walked into my room. I was in a, a room all by myself, which I really didn't question. My husband wasn't there yet, and the doctor walked in and had a nurse walking in behind her, and I thought that was a little peculiar. And then she sat down and said that she had to talk to me, and she said, you know, your daughter has characteristics of a baby with Down syndrome. And I, I just was numb. I didn't know what to think really other than that old stereotypical image that people get of somebody with Down syndrome. You know, just 
not a positive image. And I didn't know what to think. I was numb. And in hindsight, I look back and, you know, why didn't they wait till my husband was there? In hindsight, they should have waited and they didn't. So they made they made mistakes. She didn't say anything extremely negative because I have heard horror stories even recently as a couple of years ago. So there are still doctors that do not know how to give a diagnosis. So I can't fault her for, I don't want to say she did a horrible job, but she didn't do anything really positive. She did she did say to me, she's a baby first, and that has stuck with me for a long time. So it, that part was good, but there was definitely a lot wrong with the way she delivered that. And so that's something that that I remember a lot, and we'll talk later about what I did to try to prevent that for other families. And how did your husband respond? So you had the responsibility of telling him. I did. It was hard. He walked in. Of course I cried. <laughs> He hugged me and said it would be fine. And, you know, it, just to have him support me, my mother was there. You know, she, it was up, it was, it was difficult. It's really hard. You don't want to hear that. You don't want to hear that about your child. You just, it was really tough. How um, old is Victoria now? Victoria is 14 and a half. So 14 and a half years later, that question still evokes an emotional response yes. because we're both sitting here trying not to cry, <laughs> Think, yeah. remembering that. So it's a, that was a tough assignment it for is. you. It was very difficult to, to tell people. That was probably one of the hardest things that I had to do. It was just the beginning of the internet. So I am grateful that while we didn't post everything all over Facebook the way people do nowadays, we didn't have to physically call everybody we knew to tell them. We did have to call a couple of people and make phone calls and tell them. I remember telling my father, and of course he was sad. I do remember Rob talking to one of his old elementary school friends who lived in Chicago, and he called him to tell him. And I remember hearing Rob say, oh, don't be, don't be sorry. Mm. And that was good to hear. Yeah. Kind of just reinforced that he thought it was going to be okay, and he wasn't just saying it to keep me happy. And we'll talk more about this later, but attitude is a key mm-hmm. in and perspective is a key in any journey, any life journey, any hard place. But uh, so you had some choices right at the very beginning. It sounds as though you and your husband's choice was to remember what that doctor said. She's a baby first. And that's more important than anything. And I, I hope that message comes through loud and clear to our listeners. How old were your other girls at that time? Three and five. So you have a, a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a newborn, and a husband that travels a lot. Yes. We call this our Warrior Woman series. So I think about a warrior who is who was sent into battle, and what are the what are the first things that they do? Well, they they're going to look around and take stock of what supplies they have and what do they need to backfill so what did you do first off with your own life two things that I that I did that stand out the first was for the girls and for our family was to go find other people to do things with so we went to church I think you told me 10 days after she was born you were in church yes it just was a a good day and but they also mentioned in the announcements that that Wednesday there was going to be a dinner at church. It's the beginning of the school year. They were starting their Wednesday night programs, and dinner was at 5 o'clock. The program started at 6.30. And I just heard dinner, and I was happy because I didn't have to make dinner for my family. So I went to church on Wednesday night. Really didn't know a whole lot of people. We'd only been to the church a couple of times. The, the children's minister came over to me because she did remember the girls from Vacation Bible School. And very lovely, joy, joyful lady. And she started introducing me to different people. And God places people in our lives. And a woman came up to me and sat next to me with her children. And she just asked to hold Victoria. And that was the beginning of an incredible friendship, but also where we went to church for the next four years while we were there. What you're describing is such a beautiful picture of a family that you walked in and the family welcomed you and took over with Victoria. Yep. It sounds like they owned Victoria. They did. And and selfishly, I will say, there. You know, I didn't just go to church those first couple of times because I wanted to jump into the Word. I went into church because I needed respite. I needed someone to help me with my family. 
And I would walk in and somebody would always ask to hold Victoria. And it was just a relief to know that somebody wanted to hold my child with a disability that I thought initially no one would want to be around us or hold or have anything to do with us because we would have this child with a disability. And that was just starting already just a couple weeks later to be the wrong kind of thinking that I had initially. You said I wasn't there, honestly, to jump into the word, and that wasn't my primary thing. But, you know, really what you're what you're painting a picture of really to me is worship. Mm-hmm. And it's all part of the way God has designed the church to be, a safe place for hurting people, even when they don't look like they're hurting. We never know how deep the need is as we're reflecting Christ, and we have an opportunity to reflect Him in such a simple way as saying, may I hold your baby? Because that happened, then I would that I wanted to go there more, yeah. and as I was there more, then I was involved more, and I went to Bible studies, and we went to Sunday school, and we we did get into the Word. Mm-hmm. So, you yeah, know, God works His ways. I was going to ask you to describe three of the most special moments um, back, especially when Victoria was first born. But I think you just described a couple of them. Um, if, if there's something else that you'd like to add to that. But the other question would be, what are some, what are two or three of the really worst moments for you, uh, perhaps in your interactions with people? Were there any times that you can think of that you felt as if people were really hurtful, either deliberately or not deliberately? The couple of things when she was really young and we were still trying to figure out medically what kind of things we were dealing with, we had to go to the doctors a lot. And I remember just being in doctors' waiting rooms, you know, when everybody's got a new baby. And you you do. You say, oh, how cute. How old is your baby? And Victoria was little. She was just little. And, you know, I'd say, oh, she's three weeks old. Three weeks old? You know, my baby's one week old. And, you know, she's ginormous compared to your baby. She People would just always comment about how little she was. Even when she was older and she wasn't walking, you know, how old is she? She's a year old. She's not walking. She's this, you know, it was always that comparing and they they would make comments and they were hurtful. You know, why isn't she walking? And I don't think they knew any different, but I wanted, I just didn't say anything, but I wanted to kind of scream at them and say, she has Down syndrome. She has a hearing loss. She has a heart defect and we don't know when she's going to walk or if she's going to talk. Because you look at this baby and she just looks, aside from the fact that she had some physical appearances of a child with Down syndrome, she just looks like a baby. And they don't really know any different. But there's always, you just don't know. I think that's one reason people hesitate to reach out because they're afraid that they're going to say something wrong or do something wrong or be offensive or hurtful without meaning to be. It's a different situation, but when we were dealing with the death of our son and people would say things that, I, like you, I wanted to scream at them. But I had to go back and say, it was not their intention to hurt me. Uh, but when you're raw and vulnerable, it's hard to remember that. It's very hard to remember That would be it. more strangers making those comments. Mm. Family and friends yeah. were there for us. Yes. A hundred percent. And be- yeah. the family and friends were there for us, but I still struggled. I still, we had a very, you know, our our family came to visit Victoria, everybody from all over, and we didn't live near anybody. So everybody traveled to come and see us because they wanted to meet Victoria. So they did come to us, and that was wonderful. And we had friends. A lot of my friends were back here in Delaware, and I would call them. I would talk to them, but I still was hurting, and I still needed to do something. So I worked with the social worker who was assigned to Victoria, and I said, you know, I have all this support, and I'm still really struggling. We need to get an organization. There needs to be something where people can go talk to other people. So is there anybody else I can talk to? And there wasn't. So she worked with me. She had connections because she was the social worker to find other families who were in a similar situation or maybe had been through some of what we were going to be going through to see if anybody was interested in getting together and kind of forming a little group of people. And how did that work? Was there great interest at the beginning, or did you start just small? A, we started very, very small. There were a couple of families. We, we just decided to have a, an information, you know, a, a night to get together. If you have a child with Down syndrome, please come on this day. How did you promote that? The social worker helped us promote that. She's the one who reached out to those specific families and asked. I really, I can't even remember at that first meeting how many people were there, but I remember meeting one mom who had a little boy who was about three, and I remember meeting him, 
and it's ironic that the pediatrician at the hospital had given me the name of a mom and said, she had said, you know, here's a mom you could call, but I never called this mom, but I had the piece of paper. Mm -hmm. And when I went to this meeting that we put together, I met the mom and I was like, that name sounds really familiar. And it was the name of the person that the pediatrician had given me. Anyway, when I met her son, like I said, he was three, he was signing and he was, he wasn't talking, but he was signing and doing all kinds of, he was signing fish and more and it was really cool to see him communicate. And he was an adorable little boy with Down syndrome and not that old fashioned stereotypical kid with Down syndrome that I had in my head. And that was very encouraging to me. And I wanted to get more people together to do more. So we started and we formed an organization um, and then got a couple more families together and we hosted what they call a buddy walk, which is an awareness walk for Down syndrome that the National Down Syndrome Society coordinates out of New York. Um, and you can do them across the country. And I just contacted them and said, this is what I want to do. And we did it the fall, you know, a year after Victoria was born. And, and what happened with that organization? It is still in existence, and I am happy to say that it's because of Victoria mm-hmm. that there is now an organization there to help families throughout the state. You know, so when somebody has a baby with Down syndrome, they can Google and say they need information, and there is, a, there is an organization there to help them. The ones who go before us in these, in these journeys are so important in, in calling back and saying, for me personally, it's God is sovereign and you can trust him. Mm-hmm. And the, the meaning of those words in that, that hard place, as you said, you had all this support, but you were still hurting. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge that the hurting is not a bad thing. It's not because you're weak or you're less than or there there is some grief. I think you experience grief when the dreams are not what you thought they were going to be. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. One of the first things that a friend of mine told me after Victoria was born, she called me. She had been a social worker. She lived in North Carolina. Again, my friends were all over the place. They weren't right there next to me. But she called me, and one of the first things that she said to me is it's okay to be sad. And she said, you're going through the stages of grief, and you are. She said, it is okay to be sad. You don't have the baby that you thought you had. And I didn't really understand it at the time, but now when I look back, it, it is. That's what it is. It is a grieving. You're, you don't have that child that you anticipated having, but I would not change it for anything. Well, that was my next question is, I think in the beginning um, moments of that, there have to be conflicting emotions of, but this is my baby and I love her and I would give my life for her. Why am I sad? She's mine. But I think that it applies to so many parts of our lives where our expectations and our dreams, what we thought was going to be, whether it is in the way that our child is born or any, anything, there is often a grief process. And so the, the thing that we have to keep reminding ourselves is the sadness is not necessarily the bad thing. It's something you have to go through in order to understand the strength and, the, and actually the pricelessness of the gift that you have been given in, in Victoria. So you've been talking about you have an organization where parents with children who have Down syndrome can come and they can be encouraged by others. But think about, as you parented Victoria, what what challenges would you say were harder in parenting Victoria than in parenting your other children? We had lots of appointments. We had lots of doctor's appointments. And because we were in the middle of West Virginia, we chose to go to Pittsburgh, to Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh. So anytime we had an appointment, we did hearing. She had a hearing loss, so we went to Pittsburgh for a hearing loss, and she had a cardiac um, she has a small hole in his in her heart, and we chose to go there also. So it was four hours. My my parents were outside of Pittsburgh, but it was still a drive. You know, we still had to make a, a big trip of it. So I'd put the kids in the car, and we'd drive four hours, and we would go to my parents, and then we would drive into Pittsburgh, and we would take my father, and we'd go to the museum, and then we'd go to the appointment, and we just tried to, again, I had to drag my two other kids along, and I didn't want them to be very resentful for Victoria. I worried about that a lot, is trying to incorporate them into it, but not have the whole world revolve around Victoria where they felt like they weren't loved anymore. 
because so much time had to be spent with Victoria. And so the lots of the appointments definitely took a lot of time. The other thing that we had, we had therapists come into our house every day. Now, we just embraced it and made it part of our day. I homeschooled the girls. And I had therapists who were amazing, and they would come to our house first thing. So by 8.30 every day, we had a therapist in our house. So we had speech therapy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, just a generic interventionist. And then we also, because Victoria had a hearing loss, we were able to have somebody from the school for the deaf and blind come and teach us sign language so that we could teach her sign language. So we really, every day, had somebody coming into our house. So we just welcomed them. That That's how we started our day. And they were really good initially. The first visit they came, you know, I kind of shoved the girls, the older girls into another room. And the therapist said, oh, no, no, no. They need to be here. They need to be right here. They need to be part of this therapy session. Because when I leave, they need to be here to understand what needs to get done. And they are so important to Victoria doing what she needs to be able to do. And they they were so right with that. The gr- big girls helped Victoria so much, and they didn't have this preconceived notion of what she couldn't do, where I did because she, quote, had Down syndrome. So I didn't think she was going to do all these things, or I didn't expect her to do them at a certain time. Um, one of the times that really sticks out to me with that is the girls were in the house and they were calling for Victoria and Victoria's sitting there and she has a hearing loss and they're yelling for her, Victoria, where are you? Where are you? And I don't remember. She was older. She was probably two and a half, two maybe. And I'm thinking, why are they calling her? She can't hear them. She doesn't understand. She has Down syndrome. Don't they know this? And then all of a sudden I hear, I hear. Why? And wow. Like <laughs> uh, I was, it, it was just don't, think about anything that your child can't do but I thought I knew what she couldn't do but her young older sisters they haven't been through this world that we have they're not as educated as we are they didn't know that she shouldn't know how to do that they just called her what a great story (laughs) A, a, a picture of such hope yeah don't sell your child short yeah that's for sure so that was very eye-opening for me as a mom. Wow, that's that's great. Thank you. Tears again. <laughs> I was going to ask you what what unique joys do you experience in parenting Victoria because she has Down syndrome, but I think you just described one beautiful moment yes. there. They, they will do everything, pretty much everything any other child is going to do. Early on, one of the best moments that I can think about was we, as I mentioned, did a lot of sign, we were teaching her sign language. It wasn't until she was 12 months old that she signed more for the first time. So for 12 months, you know, we started therapy probably, I remember doing speech therapy at three or four months, and I had people, why are you doing speech therapy? No kid talks that early, but there was a lot more to the speech therapy, the oral motor, the muscle tone. We just did everything. If there was therapy out there, I was doing it. I just did and took advantage of everything that I could take advantage of. But the first time that she signed more at 12 months old, it just confirmed to me that she was understanding stuff. Because before that, she was alert, she was moving around, she was smiling, but there was no real communication. So you just, you know, lots of kids can look and smile, but they don't comprehend. So that was the first moment when I really got that she knew what was going on. She knew she could say more and get another cookie or another Cheerio or whatever it might have been. So that was one of the one of the big ones when she was younger. Talk to us about that challenge of communication. It gets diagnosed as other problems when really the root problem is communication. Explain that. In particular, I think it happens with a lot of disabilities, but in particular with children with Down syndrome, sometimes it's just, oh, they have Down syndrome and that's why they act like that. No, they act like that because they can't communicate. When you say act like that, what do you mean? Like what kind of behavior? Aggressive behavior, throwing, shouting. Just a younger child or even an older child who can't get the processing of the words that they want to say. So if they're a younger child, obviously they can't actually physically say the words because they don't have the muscle tone. They haven't learned how to do that. They look like they're having a temper tantrum because they're trying to get you, they're trying to communicate and they can't. They physically can't do it. As they get older, they might physically be able to say some words, but they can't process it. So they can't get it from the thought that's in their head to come out their mouth. 
And that's still very difficult. Victoria's 14 and a half years old, and she still has trouble getting out what she wants to say. So then to expect her to do some other things is very difficult. But um, So a lot of times the behavior just gets set aside because they have Down syndrome. And if we could find ways to get the children to communicate, the behaviors will reduce. So we did a lot with pictures, with pictures and picture schedules. So, you know, if we wanted to offer something for breakfast, instead of a kid just having a fit until you randomly picked the right thing for them, we would get a cookie tray and we would have little laminated cards that the speech therapist would put together and it might have a banana, a bowl of cereal, pancake, and eggs. And then we would put that in front of Victoria and let her pick which she wanted. Now we obviously put choices down that you know they like, but you get to the you give them that opportunity to communicate. So she might not say the word that she wanted pancakes, but she was able to point to the pancakes because she could do that. So communication is one of the main reasons why children with Down syndrome in particular misbehave and in all the involvement that I've had with other diagnoses is because I've been involved in the disability world these past 14 years. A lot of the behavior issues really just come down to communication. It sounds to me as though in your life you have had incredible opportunity to use muscles mentally, emotionally, and spiritually that may have gone unused if it weren't for Victoria in your life. Because I'm just thinking of how to start your day. Well, we need to have the cards out for Victoria to take her time and decide what she wants. And that's respecting her as an individual. And it's acknowledging that that's the way she can communicate. Instead of having that feeling of, we have a lot to do today. I'm just going to throw something in front of her. And and you know you're going to end up with a total meltdown. Um, So I'm just thinking as a woman and the busyness of our lives and how really the woman who wants to reflect character qualities of kindness and tenderness and patience and all of that, Victoria's presence in her life would probably help to make that happen. (laughs) I could see the challenge of that. And, And so there has to be in your own heart a determination to look inward and to say how much of this is about me and my reactions to her slowness or her inability to do things. How much am I adding stress to my daughter's life? Have you ever felt that way? Or do you just accept that this is this is who she is and I'm here to serve her? I try. I mean, but there are those days when we do need to rush because we have appointments and I haven't given enough time. Flash forward from her being little to being older, and I, I think this might be where you're going. So. There are some mornings, as recently as the past couple of years, where we have to get up early. She's got to get to school. You know, she's been doing this for, she's in, you know, at this point, maybe it was sixth grade. She's, been, you know, she's in sixth grade. We've been going to school since she was three and a half. We've gotten up. We've gone to school. We've gotten dressed. We've had to take lunch. We've done all the routines and everything you need to have. We've brushed our teeth. We've done all this. And there'd be mornings I'd be ready to go out the door or the bus is coming and she hasn't done something. And I'm screaming at the top of my lungs. And then I decided we need to make a picture schedule because I, I don't know that I decided. I think I probably talked to somebody and they said, why don't you make a picture schedule? Why don't you give her a schedule of what needs to get done? So I took our morning routine and I wrote down the morning routine. So she had to get up and get dressed and she had to brush her teeth. She had to go to the bathroom. She had to get her school books together. She had to eat breakfast. She had to brush her teeth. So she had to do all these things. A whole list and I had her help me with it I said what do we need to do in the morning let's make a list let me tell you I printed that sucker out the next day she was sitting there with 10 minutes to spare because oh she had my. checked everything off her list amazing made me feel like a really bad mom mm. just because I I'm like I didn't need to be screaming at her she just couldn't remember everything but I'm thinking you've been doing it for eight years why can't you remember it but then my friend said, do you remember everything you need to do? Do you write yourself to-do lists? Uh, yeah, like five times a day. So it just, there's these little things that happen. and It reminds me of a verse in Hebrews. It's about encouragement. And um, the writer of Hebrews says, consider carefully how to encourage one another. And that, that little passage is so packed with meaning because what is it saying? One size does not fit all. 
So really what you're trying to do is get into the heart and mind of your child and like a good soldier, <laughs> plan out your battle strategy uh, so that there's a victory for her as well as for you and your family. What would you recommend to a family that needs that kind of practical help? Where would you recommend that they go for that kind of practical help? A really good preschool teacher can help. And that's who I relied on a lot when I had behavioral issues or just scheduling things. One, they, they have ideas because they deal with preschool kids a lot or a kindergarten teacher, somebody young, a, a good teacher. And two, they have access to a laminating machine and <laughs> and they can laminate lots of stuff for you. But no, it it really did. It, it helps to have those contacts and to reach out to people who, you know, I think the biggest thing is don't be afraid to ask for help. And there's something that we'll talk about later. And I, I was at a loss and I needed help. And so I did reach back out to a really good friend who, who helped us with some behavioral stuff that we had. So we're going to jump ahead now to parenting any child is difficult. Parent, parenting a child with Down syndrome has its own challenges. But there's even more in Victoria's life that makes parenting Victoria extremely challenging. So why don't you bring us up to date on that diagnosis that you received about Victoria's health? Yep. It was a Monday morning after Thanksgiving in 2014. And we were getting ready for school, and Victoria just said to me, Mom, my ankle hurts. And I said, okay, let me know how it is after school. We had been at my sister-in-law and brother-in-law's with all the, all the cousins over the weekend, and I figured that she jumped and just, you know, maybe twisted something, and I just let it go. It didn't look like much. That afternoon, she came home from school, and she said, my ankle still hurts. I said, well, let's go to swim practice. Uh, you know, there's no blood. I'm not worrying about it. I, I hear a lot of complaining from some siblings here and there. She went to swim practice. She came back home. She goes, yeah, it still feels funny, Mom. And I said, okay, let me know how it is tomorrow morning. So the next morning, Tuesday morning, she wakes up. We have an orthodontist appointment. She says, Mom, my ankle still hurts. And I look at it, and, it, and I feel it, and it's a little warm. And I said, okay, we'll, we'll call the doctor later. But right now, let's go to the orthodontist. you got to go to the orthodontist. So we go to the orthodontist. It's first thing in the morning. We're a little late for school. And I pick her up from the orthodontist. I'm getting ready to drop her off at school. And she says, did you call the doctor? And I'm like, wow, this must really hurt her. She has high pain tolerance. Kids and individuals with Down syndrome have a lot of um, low muscle tone. And so it doesn't always sense things as much as a typical child would sense things. So the fact that she's now complaining about it and she's asking if I've called the doctor, I thought maybe we really ought to. And then selfishly as a mom, I've already taken my morning, Tuesday morning. If I can knock it out today, then I can have all day Wednesday to do whatever I want. Mm -hmm. And I won't have to pull her out of school and take her to the doctor on Wednesday morning. So I called the doctor's office and they said, oh, bring her in, you know, right away. We have time. And I said, oh, okay. So we go, we see the nurse practitioner. She looks at it. She goes, well, it's, you know, it's a little warm. Not really sure what we're looking at. Asks her questions. Did you fall? Did you do this? No, no, no. And she said, we're going to do an x-ray and we're going to do blood work and look for Lyme's disease because it felt funny. So that's what we did. We left, we went, got the blood work, and then we, I dropped her off at school. And it was about 10 minutes after I dropped her off from school, I got the phone call. And it was from the pediatrician. And I thought, well, this is really strange because I saw the nurse practitioner. And she said, Karen, I've, I've talked to Rob already, but there's a lesion on Victoria's ankle and I'm trying to get you in with the orthopedic doctor but he's not available until next week and that's not soon enough so she made she said I have an appointment for Victoria already scheduled tomorrow morning at nine o'clock with oncology was your husband home or was he hours away he was hours away. So she said, I, I scheduled an appointment with oncology. So you have that at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. So you knew immediately. Oh, well, I just, yeah. you hear oncology, and it's yeah. just like, and, and, whoa. And next week isn't soon and enough. And next week's not soon enough. So yeah. there was something happening that they needed yeah. it to be quick. I, I was just numb. Yeah. I mean, I know what I was doing. I know where I was going, and I, I was going to get a new iPhone. And I, mm -hmm. I remember being there, and the, the guy is trying to transfer stuff. And then I'm getting another phone call from the hospital, and it's now the orthopedic doctor can see me. 
So somebody made some phone calls. So now it's only been an hour later, and now the orthopedic doctor can see me after we see the oncologist. So all of a sudden, we have this appointment with this doctor who couldn't see us before. So they were moving really, really quickly, and, and I remember just taking my phone, told the guy, don't don't bother transferring any numbers. I need them all, and I'm going to be on the phone for a while. So we took Victoria the next morning. We didn't say a whole lot to her, I don't think. Um, we just said we were going to go get her ankle checked out. And I remember walking in and running into another family that we know, and, oh, what are you here for? And Rob and I just... We had a feeling we knew what we were there for, but we didn't really know mm. what to say. So we just kind of blew it off and said hi. So we went to that appointment. The oncologist didn't know enough information to really say anything. So we basically had to go see the orthopedic doctor. And he just, you could see the sadness in his eyes. So he already had an idea of what he thought it was. Just from the x-rays just from the x-ray. and the blood work. He mm-hmm. had an idea of what he was leaning towards. So he he had three different diagnoses on what he was leaning towards. And I kind of would have just been like, okay, I'll wait till I know for sure. But Rob kept asking, you know, what are you thinking? What do you, what do you think right. about? And he said, well, it could be this, this, or this. And he said, I w- we need to do a biopsy. And so we can do a biopsy tomorrow. So now it's Thursday morning mm-hmm. and we're doing a biopsy. And we go in and we do the biopsy. We didn't hear from the doctors again until Tuesday when our doctor came in person and introduced himself, and he said, you don't know me, but I feel like I've known you because I've been working on your case for the past four days. So they knew on Friday what was going on, but they didn't talk to us about it until Tuesday. He reached out across the country, so he proceeded to say the biopsy confirmed that Victoria has osteosarcoma, which is a bone cancer, but... The reason the doctor had been working on it for so many days was because the fact that she has Down syndrome makes it really, really rare. Mm. Individuals with Down syndrome are prone to get leukemia, but very rarely get osteosarcoma. So he reached out across the country to find doctors who had dealt with this particular diagnosis in individuals with Down syndrome, and he found two other cases. One of a little boy or a young boy in Seattle who had been successful and he treatment went well and the other family where they chose to not treat so those were our options on who what we're looking at and really he he explained to us that the typical treatment that they would use involved a a drug that he knows from his experience in dealing with individuals with down syndrome and leukemia that they just metabolize the drug differently and the amount of the drug that they need to give for osteosarcoma is just not something that kids with Down syndrome would tolerate well. So the one main drug that they would normally use, he did not feel safe using in osteosarcoma. In addition to it being on her leg, it there was also some indication that it was in her lungs as well. And so they were recommending that we would probably need to do lung surgery. So that day when we met with him, He encouraged us to get some second opinions, and Rob and I said we were going to reach out across the country with the contacts that he and I have. He being in in the medical fields, per se, with pharmaceutical sales, having connections, and then me in the Down syndrome world just reaching across to all the leaders that I could across the country to try to find if anybody knew of anything other than what the doctor had done. So we had a couple days to try to do a little bit, and then he suggested we get a second opinion. Um, and we kind of were like, well, can we just do it over the phone? Because Rob's getting to go, he's going on a business trip to Florida for three days. And he said, no, I really want you to do it in person. I want you to be able to, and I respect that he did this. He said, I want you to look at somebody's eyes and I want you to know you're making the right choice. He goes, I, you, you need to get a second opinion. So I think a lot of times you can tell a doctor's, I don't know what the word is. I don't want to say personality, but their, their ethics or their, their integrity, on whether or not they want you to get a second opinion. You know, some doctors are very cocky and, you know, you can take my way or or whatever, and I've dealt with those with my husband in Mm. some diagnoses he's had. But this doctor was adamant that we get a second opinion because he wanted us to be comfortable with the decision. So Rob left to go on a business trip, and then I think Thursday I got a phone call that said a doctor at Children's Hospital in Philly could meet with us, but it was going to be on Friday. And I told Rob, you know, I'll go by myself. I'll take Victoria. And he said, no. I'll come home. So he came home and we went to CHOP and that doctor, his recommendation was just completely the opposite. We didn't have to think too hard because the option was to be here in Wilmington or to be at CHOP. 
Um, and at CHOP, that doctor was not going to take the fact that Victoria had Down syndrome into consideration. So what treatment did you decide on? So with the treatment, so with the osteosarcoma, it, is in, it was in her ankle. And so there were a couple options. And one was to do what they call limb salvage, which a lot of people like to do now. So in order to keep the limb, they put in a cadaver bone and they take out the bad infected area and they put in a cadaver bone. The drawback of that is there's a high risk for infection. So if you're doing that and then you have chemotherapy on top of that, you're really, you just can't afford to have an infection when you have chemotherapy. So there's the risk of infection. And then I think the kicker for us was that Victoria would have to be off of her foot for a year. And we were already at the point where we didn't know what our future was gonna look like and how much time we really had That was scary for us. And to think that if Victoria was only going to live a year and a day for a year of that, she would not be able to be walking or be able to be on her foot. Victoria is very active. She was a competitive swimmer. She just, you know, she ran around. She was, she's a very fit individual with Down syndrome. She's not the old fashioned chubby, can't walk, can't do athletics. She's, you know, she can ride a bike. She could ride a two wheel bike. She can like I said, outswim many, many people. Um, so not being able to be on her foot for a year was just really not an option for us. But the doctor did a, a great job presenting it to first Rob and me, and we kind of knew what our decision was, but we wanted him to present it to the three girls. So then the girls came in, and a doctor drew a picture and presented it, and Victoria didn't have any hesitation because she wanted to go with the other option. which was an amputation. But the amputation was the best option because it got rid of it all. And that was Victoria's decision. She didn't hesitate. She said she wanted to go the way that she was going to be able to do things. So going back to the other hospital, their solution was to do the amputation and operate on both of her lungs all at one time and not take into account that she had Down syndrome. You know, and it's hard because you, whenever you're making those choices, you just wonder, are you going to make the right choice? And that would have taken place in Philadelphia, which is really far away from our support system, going back to the need for that support system. So we have a couple people that might have driven up there to see us, but for the length of time that we were going to need to be in the hospital, we chose to be here in Delaware. So we were in the hospital within two and a half weeks. The first hospitalization was just for the chemotherapy. Mm. So we did, um, her amputation was on February 2nd. So we did one round of chemotherapy. Um, And then she had to recuperate enough, and then we did it. So they wanted to get a round of chemotherapy in before they did the surgery. And they wanted just to do the amputation and then do the lung surgery later. Mm. Um, You know. And that's, we just have to trust we made the right call, but there are times you want, should we have done the lung surgery sooner? Mm -hmm. But I can, I know for certain that I would not have wanted to do them together, the amputation. And Victoria did, in hindsight, experience depression after that. We were in the hospital two or three weeks with every admission. Mm -hmm. And it was the winter time. And with it being the winter time and her counts would go low, it was dangerous for her to be around other people. There was a lot that she had to deal with. You know, in December and January, with the first round of chemotherapy, she had to lose her hair. That was very difficult mm-hmm. for her. That was very, she didn't like to look in the mirror. It was it was really, really hard for her. Um, we got a wig for her right away. The social worker at the hospital was incredible. They knew how upset she was. We got her a wig. She put it on. She looked absolutely adorable. And she never wore it. <laughs> After she lost all of her hair, she was just confident enough mm. and happy enough. She didn't need it. You know, she could yeah. go other places. It was wintertime. She could put a hat on if we really needed to. But most of the time in the hospital, there are many of the children that would have hats on all the time. Victoria was like, no, nah, I'm fine. And she has a beautiful smile. And I would just always, when she would look in the mirror, I just said, your smile's there. Yeah, she never lost that smile. Never. So tell us about what, where she is right now medically. Right now, she has um, had three lung surgeries, and we still have, probably still have some 
cancer cells doing their job, doing what they do inside her lungs. So we are monitoring that with x-rays and MRI scans um, every couple of months. In the meantime, she's on an oral dose of chemotherapy that we go on and off because it lowers her counts and then it's dangerous for her to be on it too long and then we take her off of it, but then we don't want her to be off of it too long. Emotionally, she feels great. She looks great. You would not think that she has anything wrong with her. Tell us about some of her accomplishments since um, she had the amputation. Since the amputation, I mentioned that she did have some depression and it was really, really tough for her. Um, She did great after surgery. She was, you know, awake and wanted pancakes and felt great and she was lifting her leg up and um, she did really, really well. She took ownership of it though whenever the doctor would need to, whenever the dressing needed to be changed. Um, the orthopedic surgeon would come and do it because we were always in the hospital, so I didn't have to change it at home, thank goodness. But it was kind of the only thing Victoria could control. So she wanted to take the dressing off. And the orthopedic surgeon is incredible because he would come up and he would let her do it. And he would show her how to do it. And he would say, start here. And he said, I'll be back. I'm going to go take a phone call. And he would go away for 45 minutes. And he would come back, and she'd have it half off. Mm. Wow. And, but she would not let anybody touch it. Her rule was only one person at a time touches my leg, and it's me. Mm. And he respected it. He was really good. So um, she kind of took ownership of that, and it was great. So she wanted to be in control. We knew we needed to get a prosthetic leg for her. We didn't like calling it a good foot, bad foot. So... I just came up with the term a fancy foot. Mm. So we call it her fancy foot. So instead of it being her bad leg or a good leg, we call it her fancy foot. So we got um, an amazing prosthetist that we got connected with at the hospital because I wasn't happy with somebody that the hospital recommended. And he came to the hospital to meet Victoria, and he himself is a cancer survivor. So he has a prosthetic leg, and he just came to meet her one day just to say hi and showed Victoria his leg and how he can walk and how he can bend and he took it off and he put it back on and she didn't want a whole lot to do with it but she was able to see it and then he came back and he talked with her about how how it would work and how we'd make a mold and so eventually it took a while we got everything all the parts we needed and it was probably it was early end of March early in April that we got Victoria to stand on her new leg, on her fancy mm-hmm. foot. And she, it took forever. It took forever to get all the parts on, 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. That's something that should take 45 seconds. She needed to do it herself. Mm-hmm. So everybody was very patient with her. And they needed to be. She had no control over anything. Yeah. You know, she's in the hospital getting chemotherapy. She can't control anything. And when I had cancer, that was one of the things that I remember reading right away, you know, did all my research, and one of the things was cancer patients have to be in control of something. You you take control of something. And that helped me when I was in the hospital, that I let everybody that walked into my room that I was in control. (laughs) And I wanted to know what they were doing to me and why they were doing it and all of that. So I I think that, you know, Victoria is displaying that innate need that there has to be something I can control in my life, how wise you were and all of her caretakers to let her do that. She put her fancy foot on. Mm. She stood and she she stood. She said, I'm that's I'm done. And she popped it off. But she stood. And he got enough to see, okay, here are the adjustments I need to make. And he said, I'll be back. And then he came back a couple days later. And then it was just trying to get her to walk. And um, and that was hard. It was really hard. She did not want to trust that it would bear weight. And it took a, it took a long time. But we bribed her. They bribed her a lot with donuts and different <laughs> things. And um, she did walk, you know, out into the hallway for a dozen donuts. Mm. The heat. He said, will you do it for a dozen donuts? And she popped up and said, dozen donuts? Okay. And she started walking. So when she wanted to do it, she could do it. Kind of like back to when she was, uh, the the girls were calling her and she was ignoring until she was ready to say, I'm here. So she's very determined and she can do a lot. Yeah, There are a couple different things that happened where when she wanted to do it, we had a physical therapist come to the house 
when she had her fancy foot to help her. She had to learn how to go down the steps. So she had crutches. And fortunately, Victoria was a competitive swimmer. So using the crutches was no problem to her. When she had her amputation, it was easy peasy. She had no, she had the upper body strength to use crutches and she was very comfortable using them. So it was good and bad because then when she had her fancy foot, it was easier for her just to use her crutches so she would not bear weight on that mm -hmm. foot. But she had to learn. She had to learn how to go up and downstairs. And the one time the physical therapist was at the house and the physical therapist was getting frustrated with her because she'd come a couple times and we weren't really getting anywhere. And she said, Victoria, this is my job and this is what I have to do. And if you're not going to work with me, I I'm really just going to have to leave. And I'm thinking, again, don't let the door hit you on the way out. She will wave goodbye and yeah. never see you again. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm thinking. And she handed me, the therapist handed me her clipboard and said, you know, can you go get the rest of my stuff? And I said, sure. And Victoria sat up immediately and said, I'm ready. She did not want that therapist to leave because she really wanted to be able to get on the steps. Wow. So she was yeah. very determined. Yeah. So the other thing that she has done that I know you know about, mm. we had a Make-A-Wish trip planned. I got in touch with Make-A-Wish immediately, and everybody at the hospital thought I was crazy because we're still going through treatment. But I knew I wanted to have something for Victoria to shoot for. I think it was always, we were always looking for something. So initially it was like Christmas is coming, and then it's going to be Easter, and then it's, you know, we're going to go home, and then we're going to go on vacation, and then we're going to, we always had to have something to look forward to. So as it went on and we kind of passed all that stuff, then I'm like, okay, you're going to get better. You're going to be done with therapy, and now we're going to go on a Make-A-Wish trip. Mm -hmm. So her Make-A-Wish trip was to go to Hollywood. And while we were there, she said she wanted to surf. And I didn't really know what to do about that. Her fancy foot is not one that can get wet. So I talked to her prosthetist, and he said, okay, let's make it happen. So he built her a leg that can get wet. And her physical therapist, who we work with, um, is incredible. And we actually do therapy at the Y. And we just started practicing having her balance on a boogie board and a backboard, whatever else we could think of to put in the pool that mm. would mimic a surfboard because we didn't have a surfboard. might have been easier if we had just rented a surfboard, but we didn't. <laughs> so we had three or four therapists holding up a boogie board and just having Victoria climb up now that she had this leg that could get wet. Um, to climb up and stand so that she could surf. And I Googled and found an organization that helps um, amputees learn how to surf. And I reached out to them and said, this is where we're going to be. These are the two dates that we have available because the rest of the dates were booked. And they said, we'll make it happen. They get in touch with us. And so then they finally did. And they said, we'll, we'll drive two hours. And if you guys can drive up an hour, we'll meet you. They charged us nothing. They were absolutely incredible. And they did a lesson and they taught Victoria what she needed to know. And she went out and surfed for at least an hour and a half with these guys. And it was incredible. incredible. And I've seen the pictures. It's incredible what she has been able to accomplish. And your family has made it possible. You are a warrior woman. There's no doubt about that. You're determined to win this battle. Karen, talk to the mother who has just learned that her child has Down syndrome. What do you wish somebody had said to you in those beginning days and months? I think the first thing to th that any mother wants to hear is congratulations. I mean, that's the biggest one, is that congratulations and not the I'm sorry's, because that's the first thing you want to say. First thing people will say is I'm sorry. And look at everything that we've just talked about that Victoria can do, or all the things that we know Victoria and many other kids down syndrome can do. They, they don't need to be sorry. They bring so much joy to people's lives. And I can't imagine my life without her at all. A couple other things, and my doctor did say it, and she said that a baby, your baby is your baby first. And I think that's really important. That one really resonates. And you do have to remember that your baby is a baby first. Like, don't worry about anything else. It's just, she's a baby. And that, I think, was probably the one good thing that the doctor said. I wish there would have been more, but that was the one good thing. Some of the other things that I kind of wish I would have known a little bit more that they didn't tell me, and that was why I started trying to get information out to families and the medical professions on how to give a diagnosis and how families could just get the information, whether it's in print or get access to it, was that babies with Down syndrome will hit those milestones. They will be able, they will walk. You don't see a, down, a person who has Down syndrome not walking. 
they will walk. It might not be till they're four or five or six, but they will walk. It just takes longer. In the meantime, enjoy it because you're not running around after somebody. So I remember telling that to a, a close friend who really struggled with the fact that her son had Down syndrome. And then she was really worried that he wasn't talking. And she was really worried that he wasn't walking. And he's in kindergarten right now. And he's running all over the place. And he is cuter than anything in the world. And she is in a much better place. You know, it gets better. There's there's ups and downs. But your child will do a whole lot. And children with Down syndrome are not always happy. They will roll their eyes and they will stomp their feet. They will slam doors like any other teenager will do. They will be happy, and they will bring a lot of joy, but they will experience all the emotions that any other child will experience. And I think that's a preconceived notion that a lot of people have about individuals with Down syndrome. But they really do have all the emotions that everybody else does. And there's no limits to what their son or daughter will accomplish. They can do all kinds of things. We just need to give them the opportunities to try and to do things. You know, They'll be in school. They'll be included. They'll be able to do all kinds of things. It's, it's such a different place than it used to be. And I think it's real important for people to see our kids in the church and in school and doing community activities with their peers and just being involved. I think it's really important. And Down syndrome will not define their existence. I, I don't look at Victoria and see Down syndrome. I remember being at a, at a conference for um, the National Down Syndrome Conference, and I remember being in a mom's group and... We went around, and this one mom, her son was seven, and she said, when do you stop seeing Down syndrome? And Victoria was probably a year and a half old, and I thought, I don't see Down syndrome anymore. But this mother was still really struggling because her son was seven years old, and she still sees Down syndrome every time she looks at him. I just see Victoria, even now, even when Victoria had no hair. I didn't see a kid with cancer. I saw Victoria. I saw her smile. I saw her personality. I just saw Victoria. So it doesn't define them. You know, um, as we kind of wrap up our time together, Karen, I'm, I'm thinking about, we've talked a lot about the practical implications of raising Victoria, but I'm looking at you as a, a woman. You have three children. You raise three children. You're still raising all of your children, Victoria, especially with some challenges, not just uh, with, with Down syndrome and, and all the joys that you've talked about with raising Victoria. Now you have a child who has a life-threatening illness. You don't know what the future holds for her. And yet I look at you and I, I don't see a sad, um, bedraggled woman. I see a woman who has joy in her eyes and her expression and her face. What do you attribute that to? Having faith and knowing that we're not in control. So back to that December when we had that diagnosis and we were just going from the doctor to this to that. So once we got that diagnosis on that Tuesday, two days later, Josephine, my middle daughter, had to go out of town to a swim meet. It's one we always go to. It's a big championship meet. And I couldn't go to go with her this year because I needed to be there with Victoria because we had these appointments scheduled. And a friend of Josephine's, her mother, said, I'll take you. I've got you. Don't worry about it. She said, can you meet me? at this location and I met her and she gave me a big hug and of course I cried. She's a cancer survivor and has been through a lot and she handed me this ring and engraved in it as Philippians 4-6 and she said, I wore this all the time through my treatment and I want you to have it. And Philippians 4-6 says, do not be anxious about anything but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your request to God. I, I put it on my hand, and it didn't really fit a finger, and I thought, I don't want to lose it. So I put it on this chain, and I wear it every day. And I just, you know, I just hold it when I'm thinking about stuff, or even if I'm not, and then I start to think about it. And we just have to hand everything over. What, what are some of the practical ways that you're able to stay focused on that truth of that scripture? Well, what, what happened to me in the hospital and again, it's just the way that God gets wrapped into things and how he presents himself, I think. I would be in the hospital, and as I said, we'd be there for two or three weeks. I would look at my phone, and I would all of a sudden have a text message that would come from a friend of mine. And it would be a devotional, and it would have a scripture verse attached to it. And it wouldn't be every single day, but it would be those days that I really needed it. And then I would pull out 
my Bible and read. It would have a devotional, and then it would always have some other passages linked to it. And it was always just what I needed on those days. And I always wanted to then, what are those other verses say that's going to help? And a lot of times I would pull out my Bible and have it. I had numerous friends from church. I don't know why. You know, they just did. I would get a, you know, people would drop off presents or I'd get a present in the mail and it would just be a card with devotional in it. Or somebody sent me a devotional book that that helped them. And when you say a devotional book, what, what is a devotional book? The ones that I have would have a date attached to it and it would tell a story and then it would roll in the scripture that would connect to that story. And it was just... It would be always what I needed, you know, and I don't know, maybe it could fit everybody, but it fit me. So what I'm getting from what you're saying, Karen, is even though somebody just meeting you would get the picture that you have it all together and you you have figured out the secret of uh, just being positive and upbeat and you don't struggle the way normal people would struggle. But I know that isn't true. And I, I know that the, um, the same griefs and sorrows and sadness that anyone could experience um, when their child is diagnosed with a life-threatening illness, you've experienced and you're still experiencing. Um, the challenges of raising a child uh, with Down syndrome, even though I'm saying challenges, I don't even want to say that because of so many joys that you have shared and that you experience in raising Victoria. Um, I think the cancer is more terrifying than than anything else in her life right now. And, and so what I'm saying, the weapons for you as a warrior woman, when we keep coming back to that, would be the truth of the Bible, the scripture verses that people send to you. And this is a message to friends and family to realize how important it is to send those those verses, write it out in a, in a card or text it or email it. You never know the exact moment that it arrives. It's going to be exactly what you need. There's something about the Bible that is living and and applies to each person's life. The church, being connected to a solid church where your child feels safe and is welcome and people love on your child. To know that you have that family support no matter what the circumstances. You have a go-to place. The scripture from Philippians, having one scripture that you can go back to again and again. When you don't know where to go, this is where you go, Mm -hmm. to that safe place of that word. And then the one more thing that I know you and I share is that personal relationship to Christ, where we can have a universal connection to, to God, but there's more that he wants us to experience. And the hard places in life... reveal our desperate need for intimacy with our Heavenly Father through His Son Jesus and recognizing that God's love for us is so great that He sent His only Son, Jesus, to take on our sin in a way that we can't even understand. Um, But when He was on that cross, I like to think He was thinking about you, Karen, and He was thinking about me. And in those really dark moments that we've experienced, that we think about that cross. And and those of you who are listening, we want you to understand what that means, that a God who sent his only son for people who could care less, that he loved us so much, he wants to extend that love to you through his son, Jesus. And when we have that kind of relationship, when those dark moments come, we can go back to that moment and think, but the God who created me loves me perfectly. And so he's walking in this darkness with me. He's walking in this hard place with me. And he's got my back. And I'm in his grip. And that is the message that we want. I know Karen wants you to have that message, whatever your circumstances, that God loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus for you. And if you would like to know more about how to know Jesus personally, you can contact us uh, through our website, markinc.org. If you want to know more about places you can go for help and hope with uh, raising a child with disabilities, we're going to have some links on our website with this uh, interview to help point you in the right direction. And so thank you for listening. And Karen, as we close, I'm going to close this with prayer. 
Father, we just thank you so much for the time we've had together. I thank you for Karen. I thank you for her family, her girls, her precious girls. We thank you for Victoria and the impact that she's had on so many, and she doesn't have a clue as to the way you have used her life to transform so many people's hearts and to point them to your son, Jesus. We thank you for her and we pray for her as she battles this disease, as her family makes decisions for her, and as she makes her own decisions. We pray that you would give her wisdom beyond herself. Thank you, Lord, for our listeners, and we pray for each one of them to recognize your love for them and to experience that deep love that you have in sending your son, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen.